Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, the Prologue, Part 2. So first up, thanks a lot for coming along for this, the second part of our high-speed race through the first thousand years of German history. In this episode, I will try to get us all the way to Pippin the Short in 755, so I apologize for sacrificing some really great stories on the Altar of Speed. Last week, we left off with Odoasa, the highest-ranking officer in the army of Emperor Romulus Augustulus, bringing the Roman Western Empire to its inglorious end. There was no heroic stand, just a frightened 16-year-old handing over the insignia of his rank. And then, not much happening. The fact that the Roman Emperor was replaced by a German who calls himself King that could not have made much of a difference to the people on the ground. It is not that with the official start of the Dark Ages, the aqueduct just fell over and the Roman road suddenly closed down. I mean, even more intangible things like the Roman law continued to apply to most people. The new Germanic law code strangely applied only to the members of the respective tribes. So though Odoasa's palace coup did not change much on the ground in Italy, it did confirm the breakup of the Western Empire. You may remember that Britain's been lost long time ago, but Gaul, which was still part of the empire, was now really run by Franks and Burgundians, and the empire south of the Alps was run by derivations of Goths, namely the Visigoths in Spain, the Vandals in North Africa, and, you know, after Odoasa, who lasted only a few years, the Ostrogoths in Italy. As I said, the slide into the Dark Ages from the end of the Roman Empire did not come with a bang. It was more like seeping water through the walls and timbers sort of gradually rotting away the structure. The old senatorial elite did not disappear at all. I mean, Gregory of Tours, who was a bishop who wrote his history of the Franks a hundred years later, insists that he is a descendant of the Roman elite and not one of those barbaric Franks. But these Romans had already stopped funding the state and its infrastructure in the last 200 years of the empire. They basically become self-sufficient on their huge estates, and they didn't mind that the tax-collecting state went to wreck and ruin. And then you have the new Germanic bosses, including those who have lived in the empire before the fall, and these guys had little love for the system that had rejected them for so long. So that doesn't mean they instantly went on the rampage and tore everything down. They just wanted money, and so they stole it, and they removed everything that took their fancy. What really changed was that the fragmentation of the empire led to a sharp decline in trade. You know, in 250 AD, you could buy Egyptian glassware or Tunisian olive oil in the markets of London. But by 500 AD, you were really lucky when your grain could be shipped from Orléans to Paris. And with the money from trade gone, nobody could maintain the roads or the baths or the aqueducts or the cities. And then you had the grain shipments from North Africa and Egypt. They stopped. And so the big cities were unable to feed the masses. And then you have the perennial wars that destroyed what was left of the Roman hard infrastructure. So just to give you an example, the Emperor Justinian attempted to reconquer Italy from the Ostrogoths in the 6th century. That resulted in several sieges and sacks of Rome. In one of the sieges, most of the aqueducts that brought water into the city were destroyed, at which point it became impossible for a large population to survive in Rome. At some point, that city had housed a million people, and it shrank down to 15,000 souls living in a malaria-infested swamp. Where did all these people go? I do not think that survival in the countryside have been much easier than in the swampy city. 
So best guess is, most of them just died. The Italian population fell from maybe 7.5 million to 2.5 million between the year 200 and 600. And I mean, this is a very, very rough estimate. There are no censuses or any calculations. But that sounds quite probable. Two-thirds of the population gone. It's hard to determine when Europe hit the absolute low point. But probably the 6th century in Italy and the late 7th century for the rest of Europe could well be the moment where we hit rock bottom. The Langobardi, which means literally the long-bearded ones, were a particularly uncouth German warband. In 568, they simply stumbled into northern Italy, set up their hipster colony without any resistance. They changed their name to Lombards and settled in the ruins of Pavia. And there they stuck around for 200 years, doing nothing much apart from extortion, plunder, civil war and rape, and looking after their beards. Okay, they weren't really hipsters, but they looked like them. To be honest, there is a reason why this is part of the prologue and not part of the podcast proper. The Dark Ages are my least favourite bit of history. It's less the blood and gore, which I actually sort of like, but it's the utter pointlessness of it all. For about 300 years, there are war bands, they run here, they run there, they're everywhere. There are all these weirdly named kingdoms like Eustrasia and Neustrasia, and they disappear or reshaped almost as quickly as they appear. They have no permanence. They're no states. These Dark Age kingdoms operate like crime syndicates. The power was based on keeping other crime lords out of your territory. The territory was there to be exploited through plunder and protection records. The king was some sort of capo di tutti capi. He was selected based on criminal energy, on strength in battle, and the ability to extract wealth from his subjects. If you look at what they left behind, it's clear these guys really liked bling. Like a proper crime lord. Nobody knows what music they listen to, but I imagine it sounds a bit like the stuff I hear coming out of my teenage son's bedroom. Okay, the jewellery is really gorgeous. The Sutton Hoa helmet's no doubt one of the greatest pieces of European art, so yes, they weren't just thugs. But here's the thing. They buried the helmet with his owner, instead of investing the energy and the wealth into developing the lands they ruled. And that is the big difference between these kingdoms and the Roman Empire. The Romans, for all their sins, had a strong sense of the res publica, of the common good. So you could achieve wealth and respect by being a great orator and lawyer like Cicero. Or you can gain public standing by renovating as unglamorous a thing like the giant sewer under Rome, as Agrippa has done. But there's none of that in the Dark Ages. Okay, rent over. Let's slowly get out of here and talk about the Merovingians. As I mentioned before, the Franks were one of these Germanic tribes and have been roaming around inside and outside the Roman Empire since the 3rd century. Their homeland was just across the Rhine near Frankfurt, literally the fort of the Franks. But they have now settled across northern France, Belgium, the Netherlands and the western shore of the Rhine. The Franks were not a unified organisation under one king. They weren't even really a tribe as such, but more of a sort of loose confederation of the already mentioned Cheruski, the Chatti, the Ripuari and the Salians and assorted others. They had arrived at different times and in different modes, some by invitation of the emperor and some simply by knocking down the door. Their respective subgroups had their own territories with their own leaders, and you know, after a couple of hundred years of settlement, they probably were all intermarried and otherwise closely related. 
One of these minor kings was Clovis, who had inherited his Frankish subkingdom in 481 AD, which is a mere six years after Romulus Augustulus signed the Roman Empire out of existence. He was a teenager, he was just 16 years old. His father, or probably grandfather, had fought with the Roman general Aetius against Attila the Hun in the Battle of the Catalonian Plains in 451. So here's an important clarification. Attila was a Hun, and therefore definitely not a German. Clovis, when he grew up, was in many ways more Roman than Frank. Before his conversion to Christianity, according to Gregory of Tours, he worshipped the old Roman pagan gods like Saturn and Mercury, not the Germanic ones. Being Romanized did not stop Clovis from immediately attacking the remaining Gallo-Roman rump state that had emerged out of the rubble of the empire. After a victorious battle near Soissons, he took control of most of central France, including Paris, which he made his capital. Clovis was totally unscrupulous. After the Battle of Soissons, he got hold of the kingdom of his cousin Ragnachar, who was also one of his closest allies. He did that by bribing Ragnachar's soldiers, or gang members, or whatever you want to call them, with some golden armbands. When they brought Ragnachar and his brother before him in chains, he said to Ragnachar, Why have you humiliated our family in permitting yourself to be bound? It would have been better if you had died. And with that, he split his head with an axe. He then turned to Ragnachar's brother and said, If you've aided your brother, he would not have been bound. And then he split his head open with an axe. To top it up, he turned to Ragnachar's soldiers and told them that the golden armbands were actually bronze and that as traitors they should be glad to be alive. And from there on, by hook and by crook, he notched up one success after another, mopping up all the little Frankish kingdoms. Next step was the conquest of the Burgundian kingdom that had emerged in the southeast of France. And last but not least, he took over the Visigoth territory in the southwest, making him the ruler of most of what we now call France. Clovis was not a nice man, even by the standards of his time. He seemed to have murdered not only Ragnachar and his brother, but a rather large number of other members of his extended family. His logic, apart from greed and psychopathic tendencies, was as follows. He believed that he descended from a mythical Frankish king called Merovech, who may or may not have been the son of a sea monster. He then declared that only descendants of said Merovech could become king, and all the descendants of Merovech will be recognized by their long red hair, and they shall only intermarry with other descendants of Merovech. Now that left him with a problem. Given Merovech was supposed to have existed a long time ago, pretty much all of Clovis' wider family would be viable candidates for kingship, provided they were ginger. So to ensure his descendants, and only his descendants, could inherit the kingdom, he had to eliminate all the other members of his wider family. So the only way to escape death for his kinsmen was to have their hair cut off and to move into a monastery. My favourite theory on Merovech is by the great history writer Dan Brown, who claims Merovech was a descendant of Jesus. I mean, not even Clovis could have come up with that one. We would not talk about Clovis only for conquering all of France and killing a large number of family members. That has happened before and will happen again. 
The reason Clovis matters for our story is something that happened one day, we don't know exactly when, in Reims, sometime between 490 and 508. What happened there was that Clovis had himself and 3,000 followers baptized in the Catholic faith. Catholic does not mean as opposed to Protestant, which will not exist for another thousand years from here. It's Catholic rather than Arian. And the Arian heresy, which was quite widespread in the Eastern Empire, claims that there is a hierarchy between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit on the grounds that God was there before the other two. At the Council of Nicaea in 325, the assembled bishops had refuted Arianism and agreed the Nicene Creed, which is still recited in church today. You know, it's the prayer that starts with, We believe in one God, maker of heaven and earth. And that creed includes an explicit refutation of the Arian heresy by declaring Jesus to be the essence of the Father. So apart from the obvious theological superiority of the Nicene Creed, Clovis' embrace of the Catholic faith had some material political benefits. The Gothic tribes, namely the Ostrogoths, Visigoths and Vandals, had all embraced the Arian belief, whilst the local people in their conquered lands were overwhelmingly Catholic. That difference in religious beliefs meant that the Goths never really integrated with the local Romanized population. And that, as a consequence, meant that their kingdoms disappeared quite quickly when external pressure came to bear. The Franks, on the other hand, had no such barrier. So apart from these extra snobbish, long-haired ginger members of the Merovingian family itself, the Frankish nobility could integrate with the locals to the point that by about 800, there was something like a Frankish identity across the entire kingdom. So whilst the Catholic faith grew, Clovis' family did not prosper. So the Merovingians had three major impediments to their success. First, they always divided their lands amongst their male heirs. The heirs then immediately started killing and torturing each other until just one was left, whose descendants then started the same merry-go-round again. And finally, they were obliged to intermarry, which could not have helped the quality of the gene pool. Having followed these pursuits for some 150 years, by about the 7th century, the kingdom had splintered and the Merovingian kings themselves had become largely ceremonial figures. Within this ramshackle structure, a new authority emerged, the mayors of the palace. So a mayor of the palace was initially some sort of quartermaster of the court. He ensured that there was enough food wherever the court was traveling to, and that expanded into some sort of finance ministry role, looking after the crown estate in general, and then finally ended up with the control of the entire administration and of the king himself. So in principle, these mayors of the palace were appointed by the king, but after the death of Dagobert I, no king was ever able to stand up to the mayors of the palace. Charles the Hammer Martel was the most famous of these mayors of the palace. Though he was the son of the previous mayor of the palace, his mother was only a secondary wife. So he had to go down the hard road and gain control of the kingdom through military skill and sheer ruthlessness, and killing a large number of close family members. As I said, Clovis was not the only one. The reason you may have heard of Charles is the Battle of Poitiers, or sometimes called the Battle of Tours in 732 against the Arabs. 
so it probably needs a bit of background. So 20 years before the Battle of Tours, the Arabs had invaded the Iberian Peninsula. They smashed the Visigothic Kingdom and created one of the great Muslim civilizations centered on Cordoba. While still in the thrust of their recent conquest, the Umayyad ruler of Spain made an incursion into France and conquered the Duchy of Aquitaine, which is sort of the southwest of France. Charles Martel then beat the Arabs at an unknown location with an unknown size of army in a battle we know very little about. We don't even know where within this 100km stretch between Tours and Poitiers the battle actually took place. So this battle is often described as the heroic moment when the Christian Occident holds the advance of Islam. Or maybe, or maybe the Arabs had just seen enough of cold, wet and misery in 8th century France and simply stopped pushing on. Given the resources of Muslim Spain at the time, I mean, it's hard to believe that they would not have been able to conquer France had they really wanted to. Irrespective of this speculation, the Battle of Poitiers added hugely to Charles' prestige and brought Aquitaine under his de facto control. Despite this unbroken line of military success, Charles and his son Pippin never felt quite comfortable in their role. Though they held all the power, they could not be kings. And kingship in the Merovingian realm was reserved to the descendants of the old sea monster Merovech. They were a bit like the stewards of Gondor, they were sitting on some sort of smaller throne next to an enormous one. Charles Martel might have hated it, but he did not dare to crown himself king. Instead, he relied on tame Merovingian puppet kings, which he regularly switched through and sometimes just forgot to appoint. His son, Pippin the Short, who wasn't short at all, grew tired of the arrangement. He wanted to clean the decks, getting rid of the old Merovingian king, and be crowned himself. As mayor of the palace, he already had all the power over the kingdom. The only reason he wasn't king was because he wasn't the descendant of old Merovech and his sea monster dad. But he really wanted to be king. I mean, like, really wanted it. He wanted it so much, he laid the basis of 600 years of conflict right there and then. The problem was that in the 9th century, you could not just identify a sea monster and then become king. And even having 100% of power and being a massive warrior was not enough to justify kingship, as we have seen with Charles Martel. To become king, Pippin needed a higher authority to endorse him. In principle, there were two possible higher authorities. One was the emperor in Constantinople, and the other was the Pope in Rome. From Pippin's perspective, the main difference between the Emperor and the Pope was that the Emperor had soldiers and the Pope did not. And that made it a lot easier. The papacy in the 8th century was not yet established as the power it would later become. On the one hand, the Pope claimed spiritual leadership over the whole of the world and temporal control over a chunk of central Italy. In reality, he was constantly pushed around by the Byzantines, who were based just down the road in Ravenna, by the Lombards to the north, and by the Roman aristocracy. Whether they had much spiritual authority over bishops in, say, France or Spain, is quite unclear. It probably depends on who sat on the papal throne. If it was Gregory the Great, who ruled from 590 to 604, then the bishops might have fallen in line. That was quite different 
if it was one of the lesser popes, like, say, John VII, who, according to the Liber Pontificalis, was best known for redecorating churches, his beautiful singing voice, and being exceptionally obedient to the emperor in Constantinople. By the time of Pippin, we find the popes in an exceedingly difficult position. By 751, the Lombards had overrun the Byzantine territory in northern Italy and stood at the gates of Rome. The Byzantine emperor was therefore unable to provide military assistance. The only power able to offer protection were the Franks, and so Pope Zachary pleaded with Pippin to come to his aid. Pippin really liked that setup. Pippin was happy to help the Pope in exchange for the Pope helping him to sort out the question of who can be king of the Franks. And it worked. Pope Zachary swiftly deposed the old Merovingian king Childeric III. Childeric had his hair cut off and he was sent to a monastery. Pippin then declared the crown vacant and had himself elected king of the Franks. He was consecrated and anointed at Soissons in 751. In 755, Pope Stephen II travelled to Saint-Denis near Paris to crown him king. Pippin held up his end of the bargain and took his troops to Italy, where he beat the Lombards in 756. And then he went one better, and gave the Pope the city of Ravenna and most of the Emilia-Romagna as a present. Well, not that much of a present, because Pippin did not legally own either Ravenna or the Emilia-Romagna, but hey, who checks the land registry in the 8th century? This so-called donation of Pippin, together with the forged donation of Constantine, became the basis for the Papal States that lasted until 1866. But the impact of this deal on the Carolingians and their successors from here on was even bigger. Asking the Pope to depose the previous king and then getting anointed and consecrated in church changed the idea of kingship. In the proper Dark Ages, you were king because you were the biggest and the baddest guy around. Under the Merovingians, you were king because your great-great-grandfather was a sea monster. But now, you were king by the grace of God. And that is a fickle thing. Who determines who God bestows his grace to? Hmm. You didn't think about that one, did you, Pippin? At the coronation in 755, a young man makes his first appearance in world history, who will be the towering figure for the next couple of decades, if not centuries. Charles, eldest son of Pippin, was also crowned King of the Franks by the Pope. In the last of these prologue episodes, which again is already available, you can follow Charles through 30 years of war and conquest, his rise to become the first Roman emperor for 325 years, and the cultural renaissance that started the long and slow crawl out of the Dark Ages into the light of the higher Middle Ages. I really hope you're going to join us. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and any future episode will miraculously appear in your feed every week. I promise. <laughs>